This is Roxy Zwicker, your mystery maven from New England Curiosities. I'm so excited to bring you this really unique evening that harkens back to my own childhood and some of the ghost stories that I grew up with in Western Massachusetts. So if this is your first time, welcome. If you're back again after so many visits, welcome back. Now, the five and 10, let's talk a little bit about the five and 10. So I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I originally was born in Boston. And at the age of just two, um, my mom decided to move us out to Northampton, Massachusetts. And I grew up in um, one of the prettiest parts, I think, of New England. Um, Western Mass is really just such a peaceful place, albeit it does have a lot of ghost stories. Um, haunted cemeteries, covered bridges that have ghost stories. And I found that I actually collected a lot of these ghost stories very early on, believe it or not, as a child. And I was always that kid on the field trip that would ask, hey, is this place haunted? And sometimes their answers would be yes. So I'm gonna share some of those locations located along the five and 10. Now routes five and 10 goes through um, Northampton, Deerfield, up to Greenfield, all the way up to the Vermont line, then down towards Connecticut, heading of course through Springfield. So we're gonna be heading through much of kind of the Connecticut River Valley. So imagine we're gonna hop in the car and take our ride along the five and 10. So picture in your mind, if you can, beautiful rolling green farm fields, the beautiful Connecticut River just sparkling on an autumn day. Mount Sugarloaf, which is located in South Deerfield. Peaceful pathways, beautiful old architecture, and a lot of great stories. What town do you suppose our first story along the five and 10 is going to be? It's actually gonna come from a town where I graduated high school. Um, I graduated high school in South Deerfield, Massachusetts, way back at the dawn of time. It was a really long time ago. But what's really great is when I go back to South Deerfield, I find that not a whole lot has changed and it really keeps its charm. So um, I'm excited to bring this first story to you from Deerfield. Now, if you haven't been to Deerfield, Deerfield is home to Old Deerfield Village, which is a lot like Strawberry Bank up here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So it's like a living history museum. But the history of Deerfield itself is actually quite surprising to a lot of people who haven't visited the area. So we're gonna give you a little bit of that history. And of course, we're gonna tell you about some of the haunts in Deerfield. Our first stop on the five and 10, Deerfield. It is said that burying the dead is a part of life. Located in picturesque Western Massachusetts is the village of Old Deerfield. First settled by European colonists in 1673, this settlement is a collection of 18th and 19th century houses that are filled with relics of hearth and home, which emphasize the intimate details of early life in New England. When English traders first saw Deerfield in the 1640s, it was inhabited by the Pocomtucks, a small but prosperous and powerful group of Indians who had lived, farmed, fished, and hunted in the area for several generations. At the beginning of the 18th century, Deerfield was only one of a few settlements in Western New England. Can you imagine at that time where everybody was settled along the coast and the bay of Massachusetts? This was almost like the Wild West. If you can imagine when we talk about Western Massachusetts really being an untamed wildlands out there, and there wasn't really anyone except for the Native Americans. 
So imagine the settlers going out there, having to find a place to build their homes and knowing that they were not alone. The settlement was seen as quite a threat to the Native Americans as the settlers were slowly expanding and claiming more and more land. The French also had an interest in trying to stop the growth of the English empire in the New World. On a cold winter morning in February 1704, 340 French soldiers and Indians swarmed over the frozen snow and raided the settlement at Deerfield, taking 112 Deerfield men, women, and children captive and marching them 300 miles to Montreal, Canada in harsh winter conditions. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, to go through the snow, um, not properly clothed in all of that weather. The long snowy trek claimed many lives. Some people starved to death and others who couldn't keep up were hacked into pieces by the Native Americans. Some of the captives were later redeemed and returned to Deerfield, but one third chose to remain amongst their French and native captors. Many of Deerfield's villages were sold by the Indians to the French, who later ransomed them back to the British. Deerfield was resettled in 1707 under the leadership of the town's first minister, Reverend John Williams. Reverend Williams had managed to survive the raid of 1704 and that long cold march all the way to Canada. He was also held captive by the French for two whole years and he lost his wife and two of his children during that time. Eunice, the Reverend's third child, married a Mohawk and chose to remain with the Indians and the French until her death in 1785. I remember when they told us that story and how some of the people, even though they were so far from home and no promise of getting back, that they assimilated to their new lives. And families broke up over that because either people went home, they didn't survive, they went back to Deerfield. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine what that was like. Well, of course, as we continue on, Reverend Williams eventually decided to take on the ministering of Deerfield. And the stories of the people in Deerfield are very much reflected in the old burial ground there. Some of the stones in the cemetery date back to the 1690s and some are as recent as the 1800s. It is believed that that burial ground site may have been a Native American burial ground at an earlier time. What's fascinating about that is Native Americans did not mark their graves. So oftentimes they have been discovered when they're doing construction or opening up on ramps or even along some of the shore locations in the state of Maine, that these old burial grounds, which would have been kept secret and certainly long lost to any memory of anyone, that they co-mingled with the people that had come to settle that land. I find that to be incredibly interesting that, you know, these were the people that were there first and then they built the settlement and ended up being buried right next to them. There is a four foot grassy mound in the burial ground that marks a mass grave in the center. On the summit of the mound is a stone that is inscribed on one face, the dead of 1704. And on the opposite side of the mound, a stone reads, the grave of 48 men, women, and children, victims of the French and Indian raid on Deerfield, February 29, 1704. The marker was placed there in 1901 to commemorate those who were killed in the Deerfield massacre. The Memorial Hall Museum in Deerfield has a collection of fascinating artifacts from the 1704 raid, including one of the most amazing things I've seen in Deerfield, a door from what is known as the Old Indian House, which was also known as the Ensign John Sheldon House. The door retains the hole and the gashes that were made by French and Indian attackers. So imagine the tomahawks in the front door, the pieces of wood that were split as they were taking this raid on Deerfield. They still have the door, which has evidence of that. 
Also in the same hall, you'll find marble tablets that describe the lives of many of those who were affected by the raid and some that memorialize those that are buried in the old burial ground. So a lot of interesting artifacts in this place. Of course, when we look at some of these tablets, they do tell us quite a story. In honor of the pioneers of this valley, whose courage and energy, faith and fortitude, the savage was expelled and the wilderness subdued. And to perpetuate the remembrance of the sufferings at Deerfield, February 29th, 1703-04, when before the break of day, 340 French and Indians under Sir Hertel Roville, swarming over the palisades on the drifted snow, surprised and sacked the sleeping town and killed or captured the greater part of its inhabitants. On tablets at either hand recorded in love and reverence by their kindred are the names and ages of those who lost their lives in the assault and were slain on the meadows in the heroic attempt to rescue the captives who died on the hurried retreat to Canada and victims of starvation. So this tablet, although probably not completely politically correct today, memorializes even more of the story, which of course you can find um, in the museum. Now, there are some really surprising gravestones in this burial ground, and I wanted to just share a couple of the inscriptions on the stones with you, which again, harken back to this attack. And um, they really do stop you cold in your tracks and you can imagine you know, what these people saw, what they went through, and then certainly when we get to the ghost stories, it's no, no surprise. So Sarah Field, two years old, Mary, her mother, 28, wife of John with children, Mary six and John three, were captured. Mary adopted by an Indian was named Holloway. She married a savage and became one. Can you imagine? Like, certainly would never use those terms today. Um, Zerachiah Field, 1645 to 1674, a settle at Pocomatuck before War, of course, King Philip's War. His remains lie in an unknown grave. So, of course, when we walk around this burial ground, you do have such a sense of history. Um, if you are um, any sort of intuitive person or empathic person, you can just feel the energy that is there, even though the dead have been buried there for so long. But I'd like you to stop and think for a moment. You know, we're standing next to a burial mound there. A lot of those who were killed were just stacked up and covered with dirt. And it, was, it wasn't even a thought to put them in a coffin, to have any type of long ceremony. They just wanted to bury their dead and get back to piecing that village together. So um, Memorial Hall has some great uh, information and connection. But let's take a look at some more of the information from the burial ground. It is believed that the gravestone for Judah Wright was commissioned after his death and actually carved in Dorchester, Massachusetts by James Foster. A winged angel is depicted on the stone which bears the following inscription. In memory of Mr. Judah Wright, who died August 30th, 1747, in the 72nd year of his age. He was one of the unfortunate persons who was captured by the Indians February 29th, 1703-04. So there are several other stories in the old burying ground behind Deerfield Academy. So if you want to check it out for yourself, just take that little road that goes right behind the academy and you'll find this burial ground right on the corner underneath a few trees. A dramatic carving can be found on the gravestone from Mary Harvey, one of my favorite gravestones in New England, but a very odd story behind it. Well, Mary Harvey's gravestone was actually carved by Solomon Ashley, a misfit son of the town minister who never married. Solomon had become a common potter and gravestone marker. 
and of course he became a ward of the town. So um, he decided to start making the gravestones in the town. He had a talent for carving stones. However, when you look at the gravestone for Mary Harvey, you're going to see that she is depicted in a long coffin. On her left arm is the carving of a child. Her child was stillborn. She died upon the birth of that child. And the gravestone depicts exactly how she was buried with that child buried on her left arm. Interestingly enough, the gravestone carver, um, Solomon Ashley, that we were just talking about, um, he drowned in the river at the age of 69. Now, some people wonder, you know, did he commit suicide? Was this an accident? No one's really certain on why he drowned in the river, which I found to be quite curious. His stones are incredibly unique. Again, they have this really long coffin design with the person's head and shoulders depicted inside. You'll find those in just a very few places in Deerfield, also Greenfield, a little further up on the five and 10, and they remain completely unique. Mary's husband was Simeon Harvey, the village blacksmith. Simeon was born in 1743 and was apprenticed to the trade in 1761 after a brief service in the army. In 1768, he married Mary, and one year later, they had their first child. Every two years thereafter, another child was born into the family. But again, however, in 1785, just five days before Christmas and just before Mary and Simeon's 18th wedding anniversary, she died giving birth to their 10th child. Can you imagine having 10 children? Just really incredible. So as I mentioned, the gravestone has the long coffin on it. Of course, there is the stone in the burial ground for Abigail Williams, who died in 1754. Features a rare design of a large clock with Roman numerals, crossed bones, and a crossed shovel and pickaxe, which you can see a photograph of that gravestone on my Instagram. I just posted it um, a couple of weeks ago. So if you go to my Instagram, which is RoxyZW, you'll see that gravestone with the clock, which is incredibly unusual to see a gravestone from the 18th century with a beautifully carved clock on it. There are also several table stones in the burial ground. They're on the verge of falling apart. Table stones were used to elevate the deceased above the others in the burial ground and were usually used for members of the clergy and military and sometimes even doctors. In the early 1900s, it was said that local boys used to use the table stones to crack the nuts from the nearby trees, which may have contributed to the condition of these very fragile and crumbling stones. Funerary expenses were costly and oftentimes simple field stone markers were placed on the graves. Sometimes friends or family members would take a stone right off their property and try their hand at scratching an inscription on the rock. Field stone markers are sometimes not marked and are easily overlooked in this graveyard. And there are a handful that you'll find there. A carving on a small red field stone marker for Mercy Allen, who died at the age of one, plainly reads, M.A. died November 7th, anno 1696. So the stone actually looks like it says, Ma died. So M.A. died, D-Y-E-D. But it's actually for, of course, Mercy Allen. It's so strange that you walk by and you're like, Ma died. So, of course, as you continue, there are other stones that list the cause of death, such as smallpox, which was very common in 1785. A stone from 1793 reads, as a tribute of gratitude to the memory of an indulgent stepmother. How about that? Another marker from 1804 bears this puzzling epitaph. Your eyes are upon me and I am not. Hmm. The gravestone for Rebecca Arms tells the detailed story of her death. According to records, she was crushed by an avalanche of grain during a house fire. Oh, how frightening is that? Every year around the anniversary of the raid, colonial reenactors commemorate the events of 1704, and some of the stories of those in the burial ground are retold. A visit to the burial ground at any time of year shows a glimpse into the past of those who lived in a frontier wilderness. The memory of those settlers who survived the assault and came back to rebuild the ruins of Deerfield 
lives on within the burial grounds stone walls. So very interesting. I continue to hear so many ghost stories about the Deerfield Inn, which is um, just such an amazing place. And what's great about the Deerfield Inn is they acknowledge that they are haunted, which I was really surprised because they have acknowledged this for years. I remember back as a child, again, living um, out in Western Mass, that as kids, people would talk about, ooh, you know, are you gonna stay at the haunted Deerfield Inn? So there are said to be at least a couple of ghosts at the Deerfield Inn. Again, this is located just a stone's throw from the burial ground. And there are, I guess, two very different styles of spirits that are here. And if you are any kind of sensitive uh, person, you know, whether you're intuitive or empathic, you may pick up on them quite a bit. Um, they're not just relegated to the common areas in the inn. Guests have reported that they've had experiences as well. Um, everything from seeing the bedclothes move on the bed as if someone is sitting down with them to when they lay down, they actually will feel as though someone is tugging on the pillow as they lay down their, down their head. So can you imagine you're laying down, you know, after a, a long day of walking around in the burial ground, contemplating the raid of 1704. And as you lay down to go to sleep, you feel someone tugging on your pillow. Are you even gonna be able to sleep or are you gonna sit there and try and commune with the ghosts of the Deerfield Inn? Um, I'm the type of person I would definitely try to sit and uh, commune with the ghosts. There are lots of stories in the Deerfield Inn about problems with the electronics, such as the televisions being turned off and on, lights being turned off and on. Sometimes guests would call down to the front to complain that they were having some sort of issue in the room. And of course, the, you know, the inn knows that it's typically the ghost, but they will go and check it out just to make sure that you know everything is okay. And um, it's really kind of funny because the spirits will even move around some of the signs. Um, if one of the innkeepers or the desk clerks leaves from behind the desk to go and assist a guest, they'll leave a little sign that says that they'll be right back. And next thing you know, they come back and the sign has either been hidden, it's been turned back around. So it's almost as if, you know, they're going to help the guests and the ghosts are just watching the desk for them while they are away. I just, I think it's um, really, uh, really fantastic. And the restaurant there, definitely you wanna check that out. The food is really wonderful, but maybe you want to talk to your servers as well because they have stories about things being moved around on them as well, such as the coffee pot, their receipt books, feeling a sense that someone is behind them. So keep in mind that everybody there at the Deerfield Inn seems to have a ghost story of their own. Now, one of the places that I learned about very early on, again, um, in my first travels of Deerfield Village, was the Barnard Tavern. And it's this beautiful building. Um, I think I actually have a picture of it on my Instagram as well, RoxyZW. And it is just so incredible to walk up to and see this grand entrance as you go up to the tavern door. And when we were in there, um, I think, you know, again, I was probably maybe eight or nine. And if you want to call my psychic antenna, it was up. And I was walking around and I'm like, oh, there's something in here. I know it sounds kind of strange, but I've kind of been that way um, for a lot of my life. I'll walk into a place and I'm like, oh, there's something in there. And that was one of the places where, you know, pretty much the red lights were going off in the back of my mind. And I asked our tour guy and I says, there's got to be gotta be something going on in here. I really think that there's a ghost story here that you haven't told us. I've always been a little bit bold, but it serves me well. And the gentleman told me, he says, well, you know, we usually don't tell this story. He says, but people that live in Deerfield at night, when they drive by the tavern, one of the things that they will notice is that there are people dressed from the late 18th century walking around the tavern and some nights actually dancing that people will pull over their cars and run over to the tavern window to look inside where they thought they just saw lights in it as they drove up 
And when they look in, the door is locked and no one is around. And that just implanted such an image in my mind that every time I drive through Deerfield Village, I always slow down in front of the tavern and I look. And while I've sensed a lot of things while I've been there, I haven't seen anyone dancing in the tavern, but I can see it in my mind's eye. So what sort of haunting would we call that? We might call that a residual haunting or a psychic impression, um, sort of like an energy imprint of years ago, um, still playing itself out there. So Deerfield Village has so much to offer. The old burial ground, of course, the Deerfield Inn, um, some of the historic homes that are there, and it really is just such an incredible place on the five and 10. So as you're traveling along the five and 10, all you have to do is make a turn into the village and you'll find your way to all of these places. The burial ground again is a little bit behind Deerfield Academy, but it's just a little bit off the beaten path. All you gotta do is just park your car, get out and walk around. Um, some of the houses have the dates in front of them. When you stand in front of some of the buildings, you can see the old wavy glass. So it you know, kind of throws a little bit of a, a trick on the eye. You know, it may be light and shadow or maybe it's just a, a long lost ghost that's wandering around those buildings. So I had to start with Deerfield. I mean, that was, you know, that was my place, you know, back in, you know, the 80s maybe. Um, that was, that was you know, the place that I used to love to spend a lot of time. I just lived right up the road. So that's our, our first location on our five and 10. So this is from um, Springfield, Massachusetts, which of course is along the five and 10. Springfield has an amazing array of old barrel grounds and they're rather hidden ones that you kind of have to map out to find your way there. Um, there's some great churchyards as well. When I found this story, I was totally spooked out and I still am kind of spooked out. Um, it is a little bit grisly, so just beware. It's a little bit grisly. Um, and it actually starts with the word grisly. All right, so this is grave robbing in the name of science. Oh, this just does not sound good right out of the gate, right? A grisly grave robbery took place in Springfield, Massachusetts, around the scenic Pioneer Valley in the western part of the state. This disturbing event took place between 1826 and 1830, and the complete details were documented in a dusty old scrapbook of newspaper articles that were written by Dr. Alfred and kept in the city library. One of my favorite things, as you know, is to collect old antiques, artifacts, photographs, um, anything that I can really get my hands on that relates particularly to the 19th century in New England. Um, I have found some amazing things and I've yet to, to share some of those stories with you, so they'll be coming soon. But this old scrapbook in an old library with a story just waiting to be told. So Dr. Alfred was a reporter for the Republican, a local Springfield newspaper. The account discussed the unorthodox practice of Dr. W.L. Loring, Dr. Loring was educated at Harvard Medical College, but despite his top-notch education, the good doctor did not have a successful practice. Desperate for a solid source of income, Dr. Loring found an ambitious way to make some fast money with some help from the dead. And the tale of how he made his income struck readers with unimaginable terror. Oof, this is going to be a creepy one. The Pittsfield Medical College, located in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, had trouble obtaining bodies for dissection. Dr. Loring undertook a scheme to supply the demand of the growing school by furnishing crematory remains, skeletons, and whenever possible, complete bodies. On the morning of February 25th, 1826, Curious people quickly gathered in the old burial ground, which was located at the foot of Elm Street in Springfield. The sight of the empty and unfilled grave of Jonathan M. Molthrop sent a nervous chill throughout the community. Just a few days earlier, Molthrop had committed suicide by hanging himself. Well, Molthrop was a healthy person, so his corpse 
was quite desirable to those who were looking to learn more about the human body. According to the account, the body was discovered near the home of Dr. Loring by the armory. And while many people suspected that the doctor had removed the body from the grave, there were no witnesses. It wasn't long before some citizens became vigilant protectors of the recently deceased. Groups of people would hide out in the cemeteries and watch for anyone that looked suspicious. One group of three young men watched over the grave of Mrs. Hamilton of Chicopee Falls. The men were concerned because Mrs. Hamilton had killed herself in a crazy fit and a little damage was done to her body. One night, Dr. Loring and two of his students, Mr. Whitman and Jacob Perkins Jr. approached the grave and they were unaware that they were being watched until one of the spies shouted out, what do you want there? The doctor feared that he might be caught and fled with his two accomplices. However, a few days later, the doctor and his ghoulish henchmen visited the grave once again. And when they discovered that there was no one around, Mrs. Hamilton's body was stolen clean out of the grave. It was after this incident that the general public became so fearful that they did not want to bury the dead. Then there was the case with the body of Mrs. Russell Curtis, a woman who in a fit of insanity committed suicide. Mrs. Russell's family and friends knew that her body would also be a target and they decided not to bury her at all. It had become apparent that Dr. Loring was seeking suicide victims. How sad. Once the funeral at the old Methodist church on Union Street was over, Mrs. Russell's body was removed and brought to the home of friends. Residents in the area described seeing three suspicious characters hovering around the house and believed that they were Pittsfield medical students. Fearful that the body would be stolen, Mrs. Russell's friends moved her again. Her body was placed in the basement of the Methodist Church for it was described as, quote, a very long time. That just doesn't make me feel good. Like her body was left there for how long? Well, oddly enough, the final resting place of Mrs. Bo Russell's body is completely unknown. Like, if she was in that room for a really long time, are we talking a week? Maybe two weeks? I mean, it doesn't take long for a dead body to break down. Certainly for a dead body to smell. And then we don't know where she is. There's no documentation, no grave marker. That's a ghost story in and of itself, quite honestly. It wasn't long before another grave was robbed from the old burial ground on Elm Street. The body of William Nevers had disappeared. There was such an outcry at this point that the matter came before the city of Springfield selectmen. An investigation followed and Dr. Loring, Jacob Perkins Jr. and George Ball were finally arrested. William Never's body had been found in Westfield before it could be transferred to Pittsfield. After the arrest, it was decided that a tomb should be built in order to protect the dead. Dr. Loring's trial took place May 1819. Residents of the community waited anxiously to hear what his fate would be. Perkins was fined just $50, and Dr. Loring was fined $500. Amazingly, the governor's council felt that Dr. Loring's work was not quote-unquote wholly unworthy. Now, hold on a minute here. So they just ended up with a fine because apparently they thought that there was some good that might come out of having those bodies. So again, the courts determined that it wasn't wholly unworthy. I mean, I couldn't even imagine, you know, they practically got away with that $50 and $500. Granted, that was a lot of money back in the time, but no jail time, very strange. Well, after the trial, residents were still suspicious of Dr. Loring, and they continued to blame him for strange occurrences over the next couple of years. A 13-year-old girl living near the city park in West Springfield told a frightening tale that was associated with Dr. Loring, and this indeed is a frightening tale. Oof, 
I can't even imagine. However, she said that she woke up at 1 a.m. and found herself in the arms of a strange man who was carrying her from her bedroom through the back part of her house to an outside gate in her yard. When she came to her senses, she struggled and jumped from the stranger's arms. The stranger then attempted to strangle her to silence her screams. Then suddenly he dropped her and she managed to run back to the house. When she ran inside, she found her father preparing to pursue the invader. Everyone in the neighborhood combed through the area that night, looking behind every house and underneath every bush. As much as they tried to find the girl's attacker, he was never found. As the investigation ensued and three persons, one of whom Dr. Loring was brought before the girl for identification, she claimed that he was the guilty one, but did not make that statement with absolute certainty of truth. Dr. Loring's reputation soon spread beyond the town's limits. According to one of the articles, a young boy who lived in Wilbraham was so frightened of being abducted that every night during the winter, he poured water around the window casings of his bedroom and water onto the sash so that ice would prevent Dr. Loring from opening the windows and carrying the boy or some of his family away. How horrifying is that? to be so afraid to go through this nightly ritual of making sure that your room was inaccessible from the outside, from this body snatcher who is now resorted from stealing corpses to stealing people out of their beds in the middle of the night. Whew, well, the scrapbook included specific quotes by Dr. Booth about Dr. Loring such as this one. An anatomist who with all his band of rude disciples over the subject hung and impolitely hewed his way through bones and muscles of the sacred human form, exposing barbarously to wanton gaze the mysteries of nature. Chill penury repressed his noble rage and froze the genial current of his soul. So of course, Dr. B Booth is talking about just how heartless Dr. Loring was, that he was willing to cut these bodies open and stand there and stare at the insides for medical purposes, but to find these secrets of his own will. Ah, oh, absolutely barbaric. Dr. Loring's reputation finally destroyed his practice. Of course, at that rate, you could tell everybody in Western Mass had pretty much heard about him. And his family suffered from poverty. His wife received a lot of sympathy from some of the women in town who believed that she was a good woman and a woman of good quality. According to the reports about her, she had often been compelled to sleep in a bed with dead bodies hidden underneath. Like, how do you even sleep like that? Like, I'm just gonna tuck in those, you know, those dead bodies that I'm gonna open up tomorrow and, you know, pleasant dreams. Like I would have left years ago, but somehow she stayed with him and slept over those dead bodies at night. I mean, that just, that just gives me nightmares, quite honestly. Whew, well, eventually the doctor disappeared from the area, leaving his wife and three children behind. She later married a clergyman and her and her family moved to another part of the country. Yeah, I'd get out too. Are you kidding me? I'd go as far away from Western Mass at that point as I could with that type of history. Oh my gosh. Well, the old burial ground on Elm Street had grown so overcrowded by 1848 that the city made the decision to remove all 2,434 bodies and move them to the Peabody Cemetery. Now that's quite an undertaking. You know, moving a couple of bodies, but moving almost 2,500 people. First of all, I couldn't even imagine the smell and what sort of condition they were in, um, if they were in some sort of coffin. But they made the decision clearly to move all of those people that were interred there, again, over to the Peabody Cemetery. However, knowing the story of Dr. Loring, what do you think? they discovered when they tried to open up some of those graves. Any guesses? 
you know that some of those graves were actually empty. You'd have the gravestone, they went to pull out the coffin. The coffin was unusually light. They opened it up and realized that it was empty. So they really lost track of how many people, how many bodies had been taken out of the burial ground by Dr. Loring and his henchmen. I mean, there was, there was no other logical reason as to why those coffins were empty. Like who else would do such a thing? So of course, um, you know, we have to now wonder, are those spirits wandering around the, you know, the streets of Springfield? Are they resting in peace? Um, how about the spirit of, you know, Dr. Loring? Would the spirits be going, you know, after him in the afterlife? It's really um, such an incredible story on so many levels. And again, you know, the, the story we're going back to the early 1800s. So we really didn't have a full understanding of, you know, medicine at that time. That didn't even really start, um, you know, becoming part of the logic until the late 1800s. So I think he just had a fascination with death, a fascination with looking at these, you know, at these bodies. And, um, you know, the poor families, it's bad enough that they had to deal with um, the suicide of a friend or, you know, a loved one, but then to find that their bodies had been taken. Um, it's such an incredible story. And like I said, it was a little grisly, so hopefully it didn't freak you out too much. But I still have, you know, visions of the little boy pouring water in the middle of the winter to keep him out. And then the poor wife with the corpses under the bed. And then where, you know, where did that other poor woman go? Like, we don't even know where she went because they didn't want her body taken. So um, very, very interesting. So that again is... Um, from the, you know, the five and 10 uh, West Springfield. So really, really um, just incredible tale there. So I, I hope you liked, <laughs> I hope you liked that one. I, I feel even kind of strange saying, I hope you liked that one um, because it is just so, so darn grisly. The five and 10 is um, just such a, a great ride too. Um, there's a lot of antique shops to see along the five and 10. There's um, just so many great places to go and explore um, while you're there. All right, so since we are in Springfield, we're gonna stick to uh, Springfield for um, another hot minute here to talk about one of their burial grounds, which is, just, um, which is just great. It's one of the ones that kind of, again, like I said, is kind of hard to find. So this is the uh, Union Street Cemetery, sometimes referred to as the Meadow Cemetery. Ah, the Meadow Cemetery. It sounds like such a pleasant place to, to go and visit. Ah, come and visit me in the meadows. Located in a busy area of West Springfield in a village that was once known as Cold Spring. So, you know, when we think about New England and the proper, you know, city or town names, but we find that there are these little, you know, villages or little vills in, um, you know, in between them. So um, this is Cold Spring. And keep in mind, um, you know, some people still call these little sections of town by their name, but we don't always know why. <sighs> well, the cemetery was officially established in 1711. Although it is speculated that burials may have taken place a few years before 1711, which is fairly common. You know, you have the established date of the burial ground, but that's usually because people have already been buried there. Although settlers have been living in the area since 1654, they were required to bury their dead on the east side of the Great River. Do you know what the Great River was or is? The Great River is the Connecticut River. So if you are ever doing research on the Pioneer Valley and you see them referring to the Great River and not to the Connecticut, which there's a, a lot, if you're looking up colonial history, um, a lot of references to the Great River and people are like, I don't know where that is. It's the Connecticut River. So see, sometimes we, we educate as well as, as scare you. For the first 50 years of their settlement, this was their place to bury people. The funeral processions across the river were oftentimes difficult for families and added more pressure for the grieving mourners. So, you know, it's something to think about that, you know, sometimes they actually carried 
the coffins with the remains and this would have been you know quite an experience to carry it from one side of the river to the other um, let alone wind and weather and all of the conditions that they had to handle the cemetery was used for about 100 years and it is an easy burial ground to wander about as it's only about an acre in size most of the stones are made from sandstone which was used frequently in some of the areas of the connecticut river valley there are many simple field stone markers with only names and years carved on them. The gravestone for Martha Eli is marked 1702 and is the oldest stone on the grounds. Martha was originally buried on the east side of the Connecticut River and she was reinterred in the Union Cemetery sometime after 1711. Towards the center of the cemetery is a tall brownstone obelisk that was erected for the town's first minister, Reverend John Woodbridge who died from the fall of a tree branch in 1718. He was much beloved by the community and the decision was made to build an obelisk in 1852, as by then his original gravestone had deteriorated. So how sad is that? So the minister who was very much the centerpiece of the community, ministers really um, you know, held the love of the people and were sometimes the most uh, ornate gravestones but the poor guy was, you know, probably going about his business and then wham, he was hit in the head and killed by the fall of a tree branch. Oof, oh, crazy. Well, a gravestone for Nathaniel Dwight, the stone reads D-W-I-T. So again, that spelling thing is kind of weird. Displays an interesting carved skull and rosettes all along the border. He was from Northampton and he was visiting West Springfield when he died. Nathaniel was the first person to be buried in the cemetery after land was donated to the town by Edward and Sarah Foster in 1711. The gravestone for Ebenezer Day, who died in 1763 at the age of 86, displays a droopy-eyed angel that bears a crown of righteousness, which was carved by Joseph Williston. The only table stones that exist in West Springfield, remember we talked about those in Deerfield, can be found in this cemetery and are for the Merrick family. It's unusual for families to have these large stones as they are quite expensive, sometimes costing five times more than a standard gravestone. Sadly, those stones have deteriorated and are quite broken. There are several fascinating epitaphs in the cemetery that illustrate the 18th century attitudes towards death. The stones for John Day and Athamar Ward display corrections of dates and names by the gravestone carvers. The gravestone for Richard Eli features an angel with a missing nose, as indicated by the rectangle carved out of the face, and that was carved by Nathaniel Phelps. The nose was carefully cut out to be corrected but it got lost somewhere along the line. So it's the noseless gravestone. Uh, oddly, there are other stones in the Pioneer Valley with angels missing noses that were also carved by Nathaniel Phelps. You know, I just kind of uh, have to tip the proverbial hat because um, Nathaniel was a great gravestone carver, but apparently he just couldn't get the noses right. So they're all missing, a lot of them, their noses, poor guy. You know, there's probably, you know, somewhere in some dusty archive somewhere or dusty barn somewhere, there's probably a little pile of gravestone noses out there. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to find? Just these little noses that belong on a gravestone. All right. The grave of John Andrew incense tells part of the story of his life. Uh, of course, he was born the Prince of Brunswick's Regent, who was killed by lightning August 16th, 1780, in the 28th year of his age. Oh, what's worse, being killed by a tree branch or being struck by lightning? He was one of the Hessian mercenaries who was hired by the British to fight against the colonists during the Revolutionary War. In 1777, he was taken prisoner after Burgoyne's surrender in Saratoga, and then he was forced to march in a blinding snowstorm towards Boston. Incense and several other soldiers deserted the troops in West Springfield and settled there. In 1850, Thomas Bridgman from Northampton recounted his death. Oh, this is awful. Joseph and Tilly Merrick were under the tree when it struck with lightning. They were both knocked down. 
Deacon Joseph Merrick remained speechless for several days. Incense was some 20 feet from the tree when he was killed, having taken shelter from the storm underneath a pile of hay. Must have been one heck of a storm to wipe out all those people. One of the most unusual gravestones in Western Massachusetts is a tall gravestone featuring the carved portraits of Hezekiah and Mary Day. The detail is quite remarkable and it remarks on the stone in memory of Mr. Hezekiah Day, who died October 11th, 1778 in the 78th year of his age. Also Mary, his wife, who died August 7th, 1780 in the 71st year of her age. Life's uncertain, death is sure, sin's the wound and Christ is the cure. Well, that's quite a sentiment now, isn't it? The cemetery provides visitors with a glimpse of 18th century history and imparts the beliefs of the people of West Springfield. While all of the cemeteries in the town are owned by churches or private associations, Union Cemetery is the only one owned and maintained by the town of West Springfield. So again, um, known as Union, also known as the Meadows Cemetery. Fascinating stories about the people that were buried there and the way that they had died. So um, I thought I would share that interesting burial ground with you. Again, it's totally worth the trip. Some of the gravestones that you'll see there are carved out of red sandstone, and you'll find um, lots of red sandstone also in Connecticut, which is a pretty common material. But unfortunately, red sandstone doesn't last too long against the elements. So unfortunately, you'll see that they um, often have uh, issues with condition. There are some uh, gravestones in the burial ground uh, at Union that address the reader as you're walking by. Um, some have little finger carved on them that talk about remember reader when it's time to die. So, you know, it's the, the talking gravestones telling you to beware of your fate. I always love those, you know, just having a dialogue with, with the dead as you walk around. I really, really hope that you enjoyed our five and 10. Um, there are a lot of stories tonight. I wanted to share some of the stories of where I had grown up. I love the five and 10. I love the old five and 10 store as well. And um, I wish I could see a lot of you at shows this time of year, but unfortunately, it's just a situation that we're in. And we've got workshops and virtual tours and all sorts of fun spookiness for you here at New England Curiosities. So um, remember Instagram, RoxyZW, stay subscribed to stay spooky. Thank you.